Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, hello. Hi Alex, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing good. I'll explain why this is a weird episode in just a second, but we also had Natasha Moscarinas here. Natasha, who just kicked her parents off the internet. How are you? <laughs> this is the reality of living with them for a year plus. It's like one of us gets to use the internet at one time. We can make fun of ISPs now, right? I'm just going to blame Verizon for Natasha's internet woes. You should. The reason we're talking about that is because we are recording this particular episode of Equity live in front of a Hopin audience. So shout out to everyone at Hopin who, who joined up. We missed doing live shows, and so we decided to just do one for fun. So here we are. But for everyone listening on your podcasting app tomorrow or Friday, the show will be pretty much as it normally is. We are going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including the new BuzzFeed SPAC, neobanking trends, a couple of funding rounds there, early stage venture capital trends, the new Andreessen Crypto Fund, the EdTech Culture Memo, which is not a memo in the way you'd think, Natasha says, also new funds from Inside Partners and the Academy Investor Network. And finally, finally, Figma and wait, what? have raised money. And that is the show today. And it is going to be a real corker. But to kick things off, Natasha, as the uh, youngest person on the show, I'm curious about your impression about BuzzFeed's cultural import in your age demographic. BuzzFeed is cool. I pay much more attention to BuzzFeed news than I ever have before. They do really good work. And I feel like they do a good job fighting against like the reputation of like the push notifications and like surveys and quizzes of traditional BuzzFeed. So I'm always like so amped to see all of their work. And notably, Ryan Mack left the team today. He announced he was leaving it for the New York Times. Yeah, I feel like the New York Times is hiring literally everybody. Danny, BuzzFeed is going public via a SPAC announced today, roughly $1.5 billion valuation, and they're buying Complex with part of the proceeds. So I'm curious, when the news broke, it was expected. What were your first impressions? I read through the investor relations deck, um, which was as exciting as it comes. Uh, I wouldn't say it leads to the SoftBank Vision Fund level of figures and graphs, but it was pretty <laughs> damn close. Do you see that one on yep. advertising? And you're just like, I don't know what that is, but like theoretically, it looks like they're making money. It was a pretty comprehensive deal. I mean, I had no idea that BuzzFeed was 600 and what, 50 million in revenues. Uh, Complex is getting up to huge uh, nine figures in revenues. The whole story here is commerce. That's what they're selling. The ability to connect consumers to brands, market them, and actually get them over the purchase line into the checkout window and through the cart. And, you know, I, it, it's compelling of a sort. I will say yeah. the part that actually shocked me was that Complex, according to their investor deck, published 170,000 pieces of content last year in 2020, which blew my mind. They must be taking videos and cutting them up into smaller pieces. There's, there's no other way they, they manage to make that much content. Or eat, counting every tweet. I don't, I don't know how you do this, but... Also, they high-key announced, like, plan to SPAC with an acquisition, which I just thought was, like, such a flex. I was like, that's how busy they are. They're like, let's just loop it all together and put it out. Well, they're using some of the SPAC money to pay for Complex. They're paying $300 million for Complex. And uh, I think that's like $200 million in cash and $100 million in BuzzFeed stocks. Kind of a cash stock mix. But here are a couple of numbers for everyone curious about how the hell can BuzzFeed go public. The combined pro forma Complex BuzzFeed thing did $425 million in revenue in 2019 and $421 million in 2020. So 
the, the advertising apocalypse that everyone had to endure last year during COVID, including including TechCrunch, turns out, didn't really bring them down too much. And Danny's right. The, the commerce story is the thing here. They expect commerce revenue to grow at more than 50% on a compound basis for the next, I think it was four or five years, whereas advertising was like 24%. What surprised me the most was how content, which is like branded content, that stuff that everyone has to kind of endure these days, wasn't a bigger part of the revenue picture, Danny. Like it was just, it was smaller. It, it was flat uh, last year. And I believe it was 45% of their little pie chart, which was also another one of these figures that was kind of miserable. What was crazy is how it much it's going to shrink as a percentage of the revenue. So if, as commerce grows, really what's going away is not classic display advertising, but native content, which I believe I'm doing this from memory, went down to like 19% from the 40s. So take, they're yeah. really seeing a proportion of their revenues decline on native. Part of that is the creator economy. You know, as more and more brands put money towards influencers on Instagram, the classic, at least in the culture, native at TechCrunch is doing better than ever. And I assume the same is true in other business publications. But in the culture side of things, you know, people want to be with the influencers, with that kind of brand. And I think BuzzFeed has less of an attraction for them. And I mean, I'll add kind of like I said in the beginning, like Ryan is probably one of their top reporters that's leaving today. And I don't think that it it, it was timed interestingly. I'm not going to make any like direct comparisons, but it like says something when when someone announces they're leaving the same day your company goes public. I'll just say that. Well, I think it's important to remember that BuzzFeed News is a tiny, tiny portion of BuzzFeed corporate, right? BuzzFeed itself, I think, is what in the four figures of employees, probably business and editorial and I think BuzzFeed News is something on the order of like 100. So BuzzFeed News has always been this prestige side of the business. Uh, as we have in the script here, they won a Pulitzer Prize for a really great set of reporting around Xinjiang province in China. But, you know, I, I, that's the, the, the cream on the top of the souffle, so to speak. Kind of like Crunchbase News. Kind of. <laughs> Are we allowed to talk about our former employer on the show? I forget. <laughs> as a reminder, we still have a stake in Crunchbase News. That said, you can say whatever you want about no, that. No, 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 no. Someone retains AOL Ventures stake in Crunchbase, which owns Crunchbase News. And I don't think anyone knows where AOL Ventures equity went. Because we've been traded so many times. You know, it fell down the back of someone's couch at some point. <laughs> to wrap this up, Huffington Post was bought also by BuzzFeed. And, and one of the things that's interesting here is when you look at their brand portfolio, you know, I always make fun a little bit of Verizon Media's brand portfolio. We have actually 20 brands in the set, everything from BBG to Yahoo Finance, Yahoo News, betting, et cetera. Well, BuzzFeed's actually done the same thing. They own something on the order of 25 brands at this point, when you include yeah. all of them all together. And to me, like, they actually have managed to cohesively kind of bring them together. That was my impression from the discussion today. The last thing I want to bring up about this is, well, two things. One, shout out BuzzFeed for going public. I mean, it's pretty gutsy as a media company to do this. We don't have that many public media companies, like the New York Times, I guess, News Corp, but like slightly different, you know? So I I'm excited to watch this evolve. Totally. But also the, the valuation attached to this is a little bit of a... Uh, not, not a letdown, but it's not great. I mean, look, a media company going public with an enterprise value of one and a half billion is a huzzah moment because media is, it's not fintech, you know, so it's not worth $80 billion, but I, I they were also worth 1.5 billion back in 2015. So the return for private investors is not going to be staggering unless you were super early, but at the same time, shout out, they pulled it off. I'm going to take us to fintech because Alex, when we were at Crunchbase, we wrote the story that was something like, why is every startup becoming a bank? And that was in 2019. And now we're in 2021. Yeah. And those banks are finally starting to show what seems like some hope. You wrote a piece for The Exchange this week about faith that you have in at least three neobanks. So tell us about it. Well, so here's the thing about neobanks. Uh, they've raised a bajillion dollars. And if you're not sure what a neobank is, think Chime, Revolut, Monzo, uh, N26 probably fits in there as well. And there's been an enormous bet by private investors that these kind of new banks, which are really just kind of a software layer on top of traditional banking services, 
are going to be not just popular, but really big business. And we're starting to see those numbers come true, Natasha. So in the case of Revolut, in Q1 of this year, Revolut's a, a British uh, neobank, their revenue was up 130% from the first quarter of 2020. So, I mean, over 100% growth of their size is pretty material. And uh, their gross profit was up by 300% compared to Q1 of last year. So not just more revenue, but a whole lot more left over to pay for their operating costs. And that's actually helped their adjusted operating margins be positive. And so we're seeing some of these companies, Chime, of course, is non-adjusted EBITDA profitable. It confirmed to me a while back. Some of these neobanks are going to work out, Danny. So for investors must be stoked that they're not all going to go uh, die in a big fire of CAC. I, I, I think the numbers are good. You know, there's a reason people have invested for neobanks for years, right? There's a reason tens of billions of dollars have been invested across, not just in, we're going to get to Vietnam here in a second, but across, particularly in Europe, uh, the U.S. has been a little bit of a laggard compared to Europe. I was a little befuddled by the numbers. Oh. And I, a part of me feels like there's a little bit of accounting magicry going on here as they are sort of prepping for either IPOs or SPACs or combinations, et cetera. Because part of me felt that a lot of the gain here, and I don't know if you had the numbers here, was marketing last year. You know, in the middle of the pandemic when the advertising rates, you know, collapsed across the board. We know that they're very focused on growth. They're spending a lot of money on advertising. I see the ads everywhere all the time. I just wonder if there's a little bit of, well, it was obviously a, a, an interesting year to advertise when literally no one else was. Oh, so essentially they saved a bunch of money on advertising right. and therefore they look better. So valid and 2020 for every single business is a series of questions versus a series of confirmations. But that's why the <laughs> Q1 numbers are, are more interesting to me because they are in a sense after the recovery of the initial economic shocks of COVID. And so they should be more representative. But your point about will they SPAC, will they combine, will they go public? we should get more numbers when those things happen. So they're on the road to liquidity, as it were, versus the highway to hell, I suppose. And uh, we should learn more as we go along. But I, I'm more optimistic than I was before. So let's pause that. And let's talk about two neobanks that I've raised money recently, including Natasha, majority, which you're supposed to spell out in all caps. I know that actually stressed me out when I was prepping for the show. I was like, majority, majority. You have to shout it. <laughs> they have raised 19 million in seed funding led by Valor Ventures. They are a mobile banking service for migrants. So people who have come to the United States and their whole shtick, I mean, it's a two-year-old startup. They charge $5 a month for a ton of financial services that are supposed to be more inclusive, understandable, and targeted towards this group of people, such as a debit card, such as at cost international phone calls. But a lot of it and a lot of differentiation of this entire company, I would say, is that it's under the brand of financial inclusion. And I think that is something that even with the massive neobanks out there, seeing something that explicit is really compelling to me, obviously enough to get 19 million more. I, I was actually really curious about this because um, they're charging $5 a month for service, which which actually like the, the account maintenance fee has to be one of the most hated fees like in all of banking. Like no one wants the account maintenance fee. So I was curious why they chose that business model when almost every neobank tries to offer a lot free and they make it up an interchange or a lot of other services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if that limits its kind of rollout because people who are immigrating to other countries often have less money because they're going somewhere else to, to work or whatever. And so I wonder if the, the price point will discourage them. Certainly investors don't think so. But I just want to point out that Magnus Larson founder of the company, has previously done work to try to kind of combat costs and so forth associated with being an immigrant. So this is a person who has their head, I presume, pretty deep in this game. So even though we're a little skeptical of the price point, I'm guessing there was some research that went into this that's going to indicate that it's not a real problem long term. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not even too skeptical because I feel like consumers are really ready to spend money to understand banking. Like I find so much frustration 
among a ton of demographics in understanding this world that's really just so tied to privilege. So I guess, I don't know, in that way, I, I do see someone, I would pay $5 to, to understand things more. Yeah, but also paying $5 versus paying a ton of fees to your bank is fine. Like if you've ever been hit with a late fee or like if you overdrew oh an account by a dollar and they're like, well, now it's $5,000 in debt. <laughs> I'm pretty sure five bucks a month is just not that scary if you've been hit with those charges. As a last thing list before we move on to MFAST, Magnus Larsen with two S's. I would have bet you all the money in the world he was Danish, Swedish. And that <laughs> blew my mind. I was that like, is the ah. show. <laughs> well, I, I, my mom's half Danish. And I was like, ah, a Danish guy in startups. How fun. And then he wasn't. And I was just, I was just let down by that. <laughs> Let's move from majority to what I thought was MF fast, but it's actually MFast. Danny, what happened with MFast? You know, as Yoda once said, there's do or do not, there is no try. Do Ventures, one half of that, uh, back to <laughs> no. what has been described as, quote, pre-series A, which I don't know why we don't use the word seed, seed. but that is what is on my list here, raised $1.5 to bring more bank services to remote areas in Vietnam. And so they're offering, over the last, what, year or two, 600,000 people have used it today, 2.2 million USD has been distributed through insurance products and another 217 million in other financial products. And critically, the, the startup is working with 11 financial partners. So Mirai Asset, which is a large South Korean asset management chain, CIMB, M Credit and Easy Credit, and a bunch of others. So they've been able to find, I think, a unique set of partnerships and reach out to a customer base that is otherwise inaccessible by more mainstream urban banks. Yeah. And that makes me so excited. Like this is the promise of the mobile internet and fintech, like bringing stuff to people who previously have been either left out on purpose or just left out because they're not around. Like why, why should your geography or your location say that you can't access modern tools? I love this. Just like fintech should be about inclusion implicitly. And this makes me very, very happy. And what's crazy is there's no blockchain story here. No, Danny, it's successful. Uh, how, That's you're going to jinx blockchain. it. You're going to jinx it. <laughs> how, how, how were they able to get all these unbanked people on without the chain? I mean, isn't that the whole thing? Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to piss, chain, everyone, trying to piss everyone off. The chain. Uh, but I will say to point out 75 to 80% of their customers are in rural areas. So not only are they targeting the rural areas, it's actually working. That's who's actually coming on board the plan. The funding's going to be used to expand to more areas in Vietnam and go to other partner institutes. But we're going to move forward, and I'm told to hard pivot to myself about a joke. <laughs> Alex, you have an interview joke under the label Alex <laughs> interview joke. Would you like to share with our listeners the joke? Worst setup of all time. That's the podcast segue <laughs> equivalent of a waiter just spilling their soup right on your lap. <laughs> I'm going to try instead. Alex, you and I and Danny all spend our week interviewing venture capitalists. But this week, you had an interview that I think actually changed the game for a lot of early stage founders looking for deep insights yeah. on the future of venture. Tell us all about it. Look, every time you talk to a VC, you're talking to a VC who's been very prepped or nearly every single time. VCs <laughs> have large staffs and they have PR consultants and they have in-house comms teams and they have external comms teams and they have schedulers. And then you, the reporter, is just, are you some dweeb sitting in front of your laptop with no help. And so there's this hilarious imbalance between levels of prep often. And one thing you discover if you are a reporter who talks to a lot of venture capitalists, often people who have been in the game for a long time and are therefore, let's just say, wealthy and boring, uh, you discover a lot of similar responses to questions and a lot of kind of like related word salad. And Hunter Walk from Homebrew, one of the more, frankly, kind VCs out there, if I can be so generous, did a little tweet make, making fun of VCs answering questions. And I chimed in with another one and then we were kind of laughing about this on Twitter. So I turned it into a post and I, I made up an investor called well-known investor who worked for like well-known firm. And I, I just joked about some crap that I always hear from VCs and I, I just shipped it because, you know, why not? 
And then I did the business journalism equivalent of going viral, I think. <laughs> like if so, like Alex Conrad tweets about it, Danny likes it, and someone and Aaron Griffith responds to a tweet, you have gone viral in business. I know, yeah. I, I like like two tweets a day. So if you're one of those two, <laughs> it's a huge honor. It's like the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Of virality. <laughs> Jokes aside, the, the whole idea was just to kind of gently poke fun at tropes. And I, because I'm just tired of asking VCs, like, how's deal making going? They're like, well, it's really quick. I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, like yeah. Can you go one level below the obvious bullshit? And the answer is usually no. <laughs> and, and, and that, I think, is a good kind of tie into stuff that we've been talking about as a group, which is the early stage market. The reason we're talking to all these VCs is because we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the venture world so we can tell. You know, not just everyone that, that's part of the equity team, but like really everyone who reads the site. And uh, the Series A market has been crazy. The Series B market has been crazy. Seed has been crazy. Danny, going back to your VC days, if I can be so bold, how much more frenetic do you think things are today versus back when you were active in the game? It is total chaos. I had a brunch with a VC recently and, you know, they went from writing a check a month to a check a day. What? That's what they said. They, they now shovel money out basically four to five days a week. That same. And, and now they're at the point where people don't even know which checks are going out the front door, which I thought was very interesting because it's like people don't, I mean, from a cash control perspective, you know, checks are just going out the front door. So it is absolutely crazy. And, and part of the story here is obviously the quick turnarounds. I mean, one of the challenges with covering a lot of companies, traditionally we cover fundraise rounds because it's a nice checkpoint. It's a year, year and a half since the last time we talked to a company, another two years. Now we're getting checkpoints of like three months. Yeah. I just had a company reach out to me for funding news that I had covered two months ago. And I was like, well, you know, I can't, there's nothing new to say. You have more money now, which is true. That is, that is congratulations. But it's been 60 <laughs> days. What the yeah. f like, changed? There's no way. What the yeah. f changed in 60 days <laughs> that someone came in and was like, that's worth 4x more than it was 60 days ago. Nothing. I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying like, people are just combining their seed rounds into one seed announcement to make it look like the biggest seed. And I feel like this is like the the running joke of like VCs to what's like not being cited by the New York Times is to journalists, not at the Times. They're like, don't believe the seed round because these are lags and delay that are being used to like raise their next round. But I just thought it was an interesting point of like the 20 million Series A that you're seeing was not raised in one week. It was probably raised in like small chunks those small chunks could have been day after checks for sure. Kind, Yeah. So th that definitely is happening, but there's a lot of other kind of weird stuff. So uh, Anna and I wrote a piece for TC kind of about like, so, okay. We were talking to a VC who invests in a lot of AI companies and she was like, look, there's so much seed money. This is Rudina from Glasswing. There's so much seed money out there that companies can get a lot more done before they raise a series A and a series A was in the old days, your first like institutional round. Like it was the first time Sequoia invested in you versus like Billy Bob's angel factory, right? That's obviously changed a lot with the advent of seed and pre-seed funds, but that was kind of the idea. So startups can do a lot more pre-series A. So when they do raise an A, the A is a little bit late, she was saying, but there's so much late stage money flowing into the venture capital market that once you raise an A, if you're at all attractive, you can raise a B right away. So kind of late A's, early B's was the idea. So we decided to go ask a lot of VCs about this because, you know, Rudina is smart, but she's only one data point because she's only one person. And we got kind of two kinds of responses. Some VCs were like, yeah, that is happening. But then there's a weird twist to this. And yes, we, we are going to talk about Tiger, which is that with so much late stage money coming down the stack into earlier, earlier rounds, some rounds are being preempted at levels of revenue that are hilarious. So VCs have told me, various VCs have told me that series A rounds are being done at like 300 to $500,000 in annual recurring revenue. Like really a dusting 
of top flight at most. And so there's this weird like dynamic of like late A's or really early A's and then really fast B's. And if that didn't make any sense, welcome to our world, because that's what reporting on this is always like. <laughs> I think at some point, if it continues to decline, we're just going to invest when it's negative ARR. What's negative ARR? Like money just flowing out the front door. It's like money you pay your customers <laughs> to not use you. I think we talked about a startup last week that is doing that, paying partners to use uh, them. See, you heard it here live on equity. We, we <laughs> have seen companies with negative gross margins, which is about as close as I can get to negative ARR, unless you're referring to OPEX, Danny, in which case no, it's not even a good job. It's a contract that signs that annually you will give recurring revenue to your customers and not to you. Is that a thing or are you making a joke? I, I am both making a joke, but I think this is a joke <laughs> world. That's why we called it weird and chaotic. I mean, I, I, I oh. do see more and more folks who give money back to the customers. True. Theoretically, it's a positive net. I think in some cases it's a negative net, but people love customers. They don't necessarily love revenue. Yeah. Well, if you were curious what TechCrunch's Slack <laughs> looks like, it's a lot of that. Natasha, before we jump into the end recent round, I just want to ask about the ed tech space because it was really fun to kind of work on parsing out what was going on in the broader early stage market. But I'm just curious, what's happened lately in ed tech? Because it feels slightly quieter from where I'm sitting, but I'm curious if you're seeing a deceleration in early stage ed tech rounds or if I'm just missing them. I actually am not getting pitched too many pre-seed seed ed tech rounds, nor am I huh. getting pitched new venture funds. I did get pitched one today. So that was like rare all of a sudden. But I think compared to like maybe six months ago, I was hearing about a unicorn at least once a month. And a few of those unicorns have since raised. So we've seen like the big get bigger and we've seen the small get a little bit quieter. And I know we'll talk about it a little later, but it could be for a lot of reasons, such as legislation and in-person happening. All right, so that's EdTech, one of my favorite spaces. My other favorite space in startups is crypto. And Danny, there was enormous crypto news from the Andreessen crew, better known as A16Z. What's going on there? They announced this morning that they raised $2.2 billion in Fund 3 for crypto. That is after a $300 million debut fund back in 2018 and a second fund of $515 million. So that is more than 4x of an increase. But Andreessen theoretically made about $11.2 billion on its Coinbase investment. So it's only roughly a quarter of its investment return from Coinbase. So one wonders how the math works out there. But nonetheless, uh, Andreessen is going full in, chips in on crypto. It's definitely one of their largest funds. They're now managing $18.8 billion across all their various funds and sundries and there's so many things going on over there, including publications that we've talked about in equity. But what's also interesting is they had a bunch of uh, hiring announcements. Natasha, who are some of the folks that they, they announced today that they're adding to the fund? Yeah, so Crypto Fund 3 will be managed by Chris Dixon and Katie Hahn, two GPs. And then they're also adding a bunch of other folks. So I'll just list them off right now. Tamika Tillerman, who is a former senior advisor to Biden, Rachel Horowitz from Google and Coinbase, and advisors from the SEC, Treasury for International Affairs, the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, they're getting a lot of institutional people on board and they sound very legit, which I think you have to be in crypto based on recent news. <laughs> for sure. A lot of these advisors, they just make sense. Like like Rachel ran comms at Coinbase for a million years, right? So to have her show up and work for the entries in crypto fund is, is like, you're hardly changing teams, right? It's not that much of a jump. And just for what it's worth, I like her. So that's a, that's a hire that I understand and kind of like would vote for if I was on their team. But some of the rest of the stuff is more interesting because it deals with what I would call regulatory prep. And so I think when you read the Andreessen announcement and when you go back and read a recent Mark Andreessen interview with Noah Smith from Bloomberg, who has a blog of his own, aka a Substack, there's a really interesting kind of viewpoint around regulatory capture at Andreessen, which is that they're opposed to it. And so I think reading between the lines that Andreessen is going to be pretty active in 
trying to advocate for a pretty open playing field for crypto in general in the US because not only do they want their investments to go well, they really seem to believe in the economic concept and they want to make sure that Congress doesn't vomit all over it. Though I, I gotta say, I hear a lot more antitrust tech regulation talk than I do anything about crypto. In fact, I, I almost hear nothing from Congress about crypto. So I don't know precisely what they're worried about, but at least that's my read of it. Danny, do you agree? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, look, antitrust and tech is being triggered by the fact that millions and millions of people touch the large tech companies every single day, particularly Amazon. You know, crypto still touches a very small percentage of folks, all of whom voluntarily are getting into crypto. So it just doesn't touch the same, you know, nerve fiber for politics. But I did read the same opinion piece. And, and what I thought was interesting there was actually Andreessen bringing up Peter Thiel's line around the fact that crypto is a considered, quote unquote, right wing technology, while AI is considered a quote unquote left wing technology because AI is centralized and top down. It tells you what to do. Crypto is a bunch of individual autonomous agents making decisions with, you know, emergence of activity and stuff coming out. I, I think there's something I thought it was superficially interesting. <laughs> Like yeah, interesting. I, I thought it was superficially I interesting. I completely missed that line. That's that's interesting. That was meaty. I need to read superficially it. interesting and in-depth dumb <laughs> is what I would call that. I didn't get to write enough about this. Like I, I I was a little bit perplexed by this line because what what is fascism if not a right-wing form of government? And that is implicitly top-down. So to me, it's a grade school perspective on left and right politics that they're trying to use to make a broader point about why crypto is cool. Because apparently being right-wing is cool, I guess is my read of the overall point. I just think it's silly and overly politically framing what is an economic concept that I don't think has to be forced into such a kind of a political paradigm. To me, it was, it was a non sequitur and a weird one. Like Peter Till's controversial for some valid reasons. Why would you just name drop him when you don't have to? That surprised me. And I mean, one thing we know about Andreessen Horowitz is that they have a pretty, I mean, at this point, like fully fleshed out crypto startup school. So they're training the next founders of crypto companies. And so I definitely think that we will be continuing to talk about them. I think we should have A16Z segment each week at this point. No. Um, no, we won't ever. It, it's, it's just something to keep in mind. But I want to move us along into the culture conversation of today's episode. So this week I wrote a story about OutSchool, which is a recent edtech unicorn. They do a lot of work in creating after-school classes for students, kids primarily, as supplemental education. They wrote a statement, Amir Nathu, the founder, he wrote something that essentially was flaming against recent legislative debate around banning or limiting critical race theory in classrooms. This sort of ban would make you do both sides to something like lynching or something that is, you know, just not really up for debate as a bad thing. And so he, along with a bunch of other edtech founders, the founder of Winnie, a lot of investors that I really respect in edtech signed that. And, and to me, it was interesting for a bunch of reasons, but within the realm of our show, because I know we've been talking about memos and just startups talking about culture more openly. I feel like it was the first time I saw EdTech really respond to anything in that loud of a way, this generation at least. So essentially, Natasha, the, this collection of EdTech founders and investors was saying, we're not going to be bullied into constraining what it is that our products teach or support. We're going to stand up for what we think is, is correct and fair. And fuck you. Essentially, yeah. And I mean, I think it's a it's different because I think EdTech, unlike a company like Coinbase or, I mean, it's, I guess that's up for debate, but EdTech is so clearly tied to politics. It's so clearly tied to expression of thought and access that I see so many more mission-driven founders, which is one of the reasons it's interesting to cover the sector, that I wasn't surprised to see them take this stance at all. I just realized something. Mark Andreessen in an interview was like, 
crypto is inherently political, but then Coinbase banned politics. What the f***? It's complicated. And I think like the question, and I'm curious what Danny thinks too. The question that I'm starting to wrangle with in this whole debate is like, if Coinbase believes that you should only talk about politics when it's related to your mission, it's up to each founder to decide how expansive of a view they want to take when they talk about their mission. And that was Amir Outschool's founder's entire point. He said, I'm going to take a very expansive view of mission and get involved with things. I think each founder is now going to have to pick how much. And I don't think they entirely disagree with each other. I think Coinbase is picking a slimmer view of what their mission is. And I think Outschool and a bunch of these other edtech companies are picking a broader one. Danny, what is your take? We've seen the whole range, right? I mean, we also just did the Expensify EC1 and Expensify famously endorsed Joe Biden for president last year and sent an email to every one of its customers endorsing that decision. I think at the end of the day, though, how much do corporations drive the narrative around a lot of these topics versus individuals? And I, I think what you're really seeing here is not, you know, startups are becoming powerful. In this case, it's Amir Nathu and a lot of other founders and other people interested in the subject coming together around the table. It's still people. And I, I think in our modern world, we oftentimes conflate work persona and personal persona because we're just always on, we're on the internet, we're working from home. The reality is, is like, you know, there's overlaps. I think in this case, he's specifically saying there is a direct overlap. In other cases, it's just the same people just happen to be doing the same job. And, and so that, that, yeah. is, that to me is part of the, the conversation, what makes it so hard to, to break up. But not only is there good news in terms of increasing the inclusion around education, there's also more good news around including more folks in the VC world and a bunch of new funds and initiatives this week to talk about. Natasha, I think you had the first one, which you'll redirect to Alex. <laughs> Alex, take it away. Give us the insights that we need. Thank you, Natasha, for that lovely segue. Did you guys know that Insight Partners has invested $15 million into minority-led early-stage funds and that it's actually the investor's money? So they didn't take LP money and then kind of redirect it. It's their own money. Yes. This, my friends, is what leadership smells like. This is what it is. This is the real deal. So essentially what these investors have done is take some of their personal capital and they have invested it into new funds, new, mostly early stage funds, which are often run by women, underrepresented minorities and so forth as a way to directly seed those investors efforts to build new venture capital firms that will invest and do well. And the people at Insight were very clear. They're like, we expect strong economic returns here. This is not charity. We think this is going to be effective. And critically, I think it's going to set the tone for other investors who want to find a way to better distribute out their, their kind of investment into the VC world. Danny, I, I was impressed. I thought it was, uh, it was non-showy. It was real money of their own. It was no bullshit. I, I quite liked it. There's nothing to be cynical about, and I think it's great, and hopefully we see more of it. Another initiative similar into this realm, this week, a new fund, Academy Investor Network, is founded by two GPs with the goal of bringing more and more veterans into the startup ecosystem, so funding veteran entrepreneurs. And, and this is actually quite interesting. One, because obviously the kinds of skills you learn as a veteran dealing with bureaucracy, which is similar to fundraising, having courage to go into tough situations, somewhat tangential. But more importantly, the armed services are remarkably diverse. Among active duty women, 30% are black. Among active duty men, 17% are black. And obviously those numbers are way above the norms in Silicon Valley. And so they announced that they had their anchor tenant, USAA, is going to back them $2.5 million for final $50 million fund. Two managing partners, Emily McMahon, um, was formerly of Capital Post and was also on the board of Patriot Bootcamp. And then Sherman Williams comes from the investment M&A industry. So to me, it was actually a, a great story of two alums. McMahon comes from Army and Williams comes Woo! from Navy. Uh, so they Woo! have a really tough football game every year uh, in that fund. <laughs> so I wouldn't talk to them that week. But the goal is, you know, with five service academies, 
There's a bunch of more companies and they're focused on dual use technologies. So anything that could be used by public and private sector at the same time, as well as veteran first companies. So I, I think it's, a, again, another angle on diversity we don't see very often outside of Patriot Bootcamp. I think there's one or two other initiatives for, you know, the largest organization in the world is the Department of Defense. Totally. I mean, two back-to-back news items. And I actually talked to Charles Hudson today of Precursor Ventures, and I was asking him, what should I be paying attention to other than funding numbers? Because we know that funding dollar and deals are going to be lagging based on all this new energy that's entering the market. And he said something actually optimistic, which Alex, I don't know if you remember our conversation with him in the beginning of the pandemic, which was him being worried that emerging fund managers would be getting basically screwed over by LPs coming back. And he said... I am actually no longer as concerned about emerging fund managers looking diverse compared to what I thought it would be. And I feel like that was just like a healthy dose of optimism that I needed to hear. And hopefully everyone else is hearing too, which is that like, it's not just you that's realizing that these show items come into our show each week. Like it's actually just happening so much and it makes it here every week. Yeah. yeah. Also, we couldn't have a live show without Charles on it. I think he's been on one (laughs) or two. So I'm glad that we managed to loop him into this one. Notes for people not in the U.S. about the U.S. military academies super briefly. The military academies are very elite. Like they're very educationally intensive. The people that come out of these aren't just folks that wear a uniform and went to school. They're usually pretty freaking smart. One of the arguments for the two GPs was essentially... You know, obviously with Stanford, Harvard, there's a well-trotted path of, of folks getting out of those schools, going into the venture industry, going into startups. Clearly, that is not the case with the academies where everyone goes into the military by obligation of signing their service agreements. And so yep. uh, there's just not that same like, you know, path through the forest. And so they're hoping to break down the barriers. And I think it actually sounds super, super interesting. But one last quick hit on Figma raised $200 million a day at a $10 billion valuation huge new decacorn coming out here. We've covered Figma a number of times on the show. It, that price point actually quadruples the company's valuation from just last year, which to my mind was insane because that was also a very rich valuation, <laughs> if I recall our last conversation. Yeah. So Figma is a really hot company in the Valley, not just because it's raising a lot of money, but because everyone seems to use it, is my read, Natasha. Like, I feel like it comes up in conversation. Like, I see tweets about people like, oh my gosh, Figma is so great. And, <laughs> I, and they're not astroturfed, you know, VC bullshit. They're like people just loving the product. So my read is there's a lot of momentum here, probably especially during COVID that's leading to these this new deal, if I, if I can. I honestly struggle and I'll be completely honest. Here is like, I, I struggle to know the difference and really understand the difference between Figma and Notion. Like they both are just like these words that are just <laughs> like kind of getting a lot of money. Okay, they raised around the same time last year. And ever since then, I just haven't put too much energy oh, in understanding okay. the difference. I'm in the early stage beat. All right. <laughs> well, so I don't pay too much attention you're, to them. You're not at a, a startup building a product. And I, I think if you were in that world, yes. you would... I mean, I, we're, we're going through a little bit of a re- redesign for the TechRun site, and we have Figmas. We I are? just got them. Oh, we do? Wait, what? Don't say, don't spread you rumors. Being, I, the thing is, given how long we've been owned by AOL and then Verizon, that's not an impossibility. <laughs> that's going to be Remember a tech meme soon. Very yeah. soon. <laughs> um, all right, listen, we're going we're gonna to wrap here. I'm just going to drop three words. Wait, what? Wait, what? Raise 12 million. Now we don't have to re-record the intro. Again, a thanks to our crew, Grace, Chris, and Kevin, who made all this happen. Natasha, thank you. Danny, uh, no thanks for all the segues. And with that, we're out of here. <laughs>